Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be speaking with a guest, a guest that has a, a scaled companies from nothing to something meaningful, uh, also some exits, money raised, um, books, I mean everything, you name it. So I guess without further ado, David Hauser, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. So let's say do a little bit of a walk through memory lane, because I believe you got your, your I mean, what, what, first and foremost, before you go into your studies or into what you studied at Babson and, and that experience, where were you born and raised? I was born in New York, uh, Manhattan, Village, Chelsea area, uh, went to school on, on 13th Street and then went to high school in Brooklyn. Wow. You're one of a kind because uh, I'm here in New York for the past 12 years and it's hard to come across a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, changed, it's, it's changed a little bit. A lot of people end up leaving, but I mean, I, I still have family and a lot of friends there. Got it. Because this is like a really big United Nations. It's, it's amazing. So, um, so cool. So then, so then you went to Babson and, and Babson is a pretty, um, pretty much there an entrepreneurial driven, uh, university. So, so how was it like for you there? It was awesome. It was literally the only school I wanted to go to. I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. It's all I did. I thought about it before high school and obviously during high school. And Babson was, obviously I applied to other schools, but Babson was by far my first choice and really the only one I wanted to go to. Uh, and for whatever reason, they, they accepted me. And it was, a, it was a great experience. And why did you always knew that you were going to be an entrepreneur? What was that moment in your life that you got that feeling? So, I mean, I think as far back as I can remember, it was just always like that. I mean, my father and grandfather were both entrepreneurs. My mom, although not an entrepreneur, ended up running a school. So I think in a very similar type of path, um, she just didn't own the school, right? She just ran it. Um, but, but most importantly, when I was young, I had a severe learning disability, struggled reading, with reading, writing, um, spent a lot of time in, in tutoring and, you know, learning how to learn. But what came from that was a real love for building things and, and the easiest way to accomplish building things was also selling them, right? So I can remember back to before high school, having a Mac in the school that had like FileMaker Pro on it, like building the cards that you could go from next to next, right? And like little databases and stuff. Um, like, so I, I did stuff like that. Also, I mean, just selling jewelry, like whatever it was I, I could do, I tried to do because other things came far more difficult for me. Really interesting. You know, there's so many founders that have this this type of um challenges you know when it comes to to reading or to writing i mean i 
funny enough, without going too too far, I mean, I had that that same you know kind of like uh, issue where uh, the professors called my mom one day and they said that I had the same capabilities as a chimpanzee when it came to writing and <laughs> and reading. So so there you go. So so anyhow, so so David, let me ask you this because you never took a corporate job, is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I did like side stuff here and there. I tried to work in some startups, like helping out even in internships, but I never had a typical corporate job. And in fact, before you went to Babson, you actually went at it with Return Path. What was that experience for you? Yeah. So a good friend of mine, I, I literally called up James. I remember uh, this day quite clearly when I was in high school. I, f- I forget it. I- probably sophomore year. So I was pretty young. I was starting to do stuff online on the internet. I found a website that he was running and I liked what they were doing. I called him up and I said, like, can I come in and work for you guys pretty much? And he said, sure, come into the office. I went into the office. He's like, oh my God, I didn't realize you were so young. I guess I had a deep enough voice on the phone that he thought I was older. Um, And that was kind of the start of that journey. Um, Spent some time there, saw a lot of the things that were happening at 55 Broad Street in New York, which was kind of like the internet hub at the time. Uh, This is in, you know, before 2000. Uh, and, you know, then got involved with him doing return path. We, we built the original prototype, raised money, brought in a management team. And then I went to college. Because uh, what was the, uh, what was essentially the, um, the business model of return path? The, the initial business model was quite simple, which was people change their email address for a few core reasons. They change their job, they change, uh, they leave school, uh, or at the time they change ISPs, right? So um, now it doesn't really exist as much because someone, you know, has a Gmail account, right? Uh, but before, you know, when you got your email account from your internet provider, it was a little different. Uh, so when an email address changed and a company the only way of them getting in contact with you with was email address. It was quite valuable if we could correct that and give them the new email address. Uh, so we developed a number of ways to do that. And um, I think I think it's quite an interesting model. Uh, Return Path has done tremendously more than that now and all sorts of other things all in the email management space. But that was the original concept. And here we are talking about a company that has raised over $120 million and that was acquired by Validity. So why did you decide to leave this rocket ship and go back to, to studying? Yeah, so I, it was a really hard decision, actually. So uh, I have to credit my mom here. She said, David, you are going to college, period, and was, <laughs> was quite adamant about it. And I mean, she gave some, some, some valid arguments, like what happens if there's an internet crash? Well, uh, she was right. clear about that. Uh, what happens if, you know, this doesn't work out and then you don't have an education? And uh, so, I mean, I went to Babson because of that. And, I, and it was clearly the right choice. Uh, I could have probably lasted for a few years, but it, I would not have matured enough, and I wouldn't have had that base of knowledge. Like Babson, although specialized in entrepreneurship, also taught a lot of the base stuff, like how to read and develop a PNL, uh, how to you know do people management and operations, and you know all of the things that become quite important as you scale a company. And it's interesting because I come across a lot of people that have come from Babson and. And the, um, I would say the experience or the way that they look at things and they're kind of like ready for, for really get out there and, and build something. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of universities that tell that, they, yes, they are very entrepreneurial and so forth, but it seems that, that Babson is the real deal. What do you think this is, this is what, what sets them apart, I guess? 
I think Babson focuses a lot on actual experience. So while they teach the, the, the stuff in the classroom, they also push very heavily on experience. So first year at Babson, there's a course, I'm pretty sure it's still called the same thing, FME, um, where I mean, you are running a business for the full year, uh, and it's a team that stays together for the full year. You develop a business plan. You actually sell product. You have to do the P&Ls. You have, like, you have to do everything across the board. And that experience, I think, starts to build the foundation of actually doing things rather than just talking about things. Very interesting. So then, so then once you graduated, I mean, you did, um, you did a bunch of projects before you actually really landed and, and you went at it full time with, with Grasshopper, which is one of the big um, full cycle stories that you've done. But I guess before really diving into that one, why don't you walk us through all these little projects that you did, like web ads or package Fox or pub survey, like what were those and, and what yeah. was kind of like the takeaways and outcome of them? Yeah, so web ads, web ads was quite simple. We were doing banner rotation, like display ads, and allowing other people to put this on their website. Like this was like the early, early days, um, and it, it was it was quite simple. And we built up a reasonably sized good business. Like it was for someone in high school generating, you know, a few thousand bucks a month at least in profit, and we didn't and didn't have to do very much. Uh, and, but more importantly, it really taught me a lot about, you know, how the internet worked, how you could develop businesses online from there, did a bunch of other things, including web design and some stuff like that, uh, before starting to dig deep into marketing and starting to understand like, how can I market something that is online? Right. And this is before AdWords and like, er, this is very early. But that base really allowed me to learn a tremendous amount and then discover things like, hey, when I'm doing these businesses, I need a phone number that is professional and it's not my cell phone or my house phone. And that's where the genesis for, for Grasshopper came from, like just from a genuine need of needing this for myself. Got it. So then let's talk about Grasshopper. So you did all these different projects. You did a, as well Return Path. So I guess all of them gave you kind of like visibility as to what this journey of being an entrepreneur looked like. And, mm. and once you get that buck, it's very hard to, to really do something else. You know? So, so what was that day? You know, like when you said, I'm going to go at this, I'm going to make it happen. And, and, and what was that? I would say incubation until you, you went to that point. Yeah. So I was at Babson college at this point, a friend of mine said, Hey, you should meet, um, C-Mac who's, who's now my business partner and everything that we do. Um, you guys are kind of thinking about the same stuff and you don't know each other, but you should know each other. Uh, we met and we're like, wow, we are thinking about the same stuff. Let's do this together. Uh, and the, the concept was simple. We're like, we didn't have any complex agreements. We did everything wrong, quote unquote, right? But we did build a business plan and then we just went out and started selling. Like it, we built the minimum, absolute minimum we had to, and then just started selling the product to real customers to generate revenue and real feedback. So to the, to the extreme where like we had no way of getting into the back end of the system to like see customers. So someone called up on the customer service line and I'm typing select star from customer in the SQL database, right? Like really to the extreme because we focused 100% on anything that we needed to sell to a customer, right? Um, and we just built the business slowly but surely and um, started to see great initial traction, meaning for every customer we added, uh, they were referring another customer 
so at that time, like 50% of our customers were coming from word of mouth. At scale, that scaled back to more like 30%. But it, it, it was always a very consistent pattern that we were delivering a service that people cared about and needed, were willing to pay for and tell people about. And that made us understand that this was something that was interesting. So what were you selling when you didn't have anything? We, we were selling literally just a phone number with a voicemail in essence. There, there was some easy routing, like press one for this, two for like, but nothing complex. We were charging for the ability to log in online to listen to your voicemails, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, 2003. Right. So this was, was very acceptable, um, but also allowed us to sell to people that we didn't have to build this for, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it gave some flexibility uh, in those early days. So do you think that uh, being it, because a lot of people are like, oh, let's build this amazing thing. And, and then, you know, things are going to happen and people are going to come to use it. You guys actually got it right, which is let's just sell it first and then let's actually, you know, build it. So, so how would you say that, that that process of selling and listening to your customers help in really uh, shaping up the, 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 what ended up being the business model of the business? Yeah, I think there were two learnings. One, uh, we did every job ourselves from day one. So we didn't hire customer service until we did customer service. Like we didn't hire programmers or, you know, designers until we did the programming and the designs, right? Like every single job as we scaled, we did first, um, which meant it put us very close to customers. Um, two was filtering everything by what people were willing to pay for, and, and then generalizing that feedback, right? So an individual customer might pay for something, but I want to know what a group of people will pay for, not what people want or say they want, but what they'll pay for. That's the right filter. And I think that helped us throughout the life of the business, at, even at this, when we were scaling it. Um, but when I, when I look at kind of the early days and say, like, what did, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? Clearly selling first But I think that that continued through the life of the business where the, the software got much better, right? Like we had better people, we had better designers, better programmers, all this stuff, right? However, the software was never the, the forefront or the first thing to be thought of, right? Like we added text messaging three years after our competitors because customers did not want to pay for that feature. They might say they want it, but it was not a feature that either made them buy or pay for So it wasn't a priority, right? So I always think of like this, that the software was good enough, but it was never amazing because it didn't need to be amazing. But for example, when you actually brought that into the mix, were you kind of like surveying your customers and you know that the time was right to put it out at that point? Or how did you come to the conclusion that it was that time? Yeah, we, we, we did the analysis on the customers through surveys and other tools to find what would that line of business be if we added it at a, at a monthly cost? And when it started to get to half a million, million dollar a year line of business, now it's something you pay attention to, right? We're doing $25 million, adding a million dollars is, is meaningful, right? Um, and I, I think that's how you filter those things. Uh, or if you look at, you know, what would get someone to buy, right? Is it a feature that is a yes, no to the buying decision early on in the process? And I think text messaging became more so that um, as we got closer to adding it, Um, the same way, like we started with toll-free phone numbers, like 800-888. And over the years, we started adding local phone numbers as that became more and more important for our customers. 
Right. And I remember I was one of your customers. So oh, uh, awesome. there you go. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. What, what kind of like was the, um, what made this co-founder relationship so magical? I mean, what were the strengths and that you, that you had perhaps the weaknesses and what were the strengths and weaknesses of Siamak that really combined the two of you made something so great? Yeah, this is a great question. I've thought about it a lot. And I'm sure if you asked me five or 10 years ago, the answer would be different. Um, and we've now done multiple things together and had great success. And um, I can't imagine, you know, I, I don't think either of us would work on something without the other. Um, I, I, I try to frame it like this, like what has CMAC taught me that I would not have been able to learn on my own, right? Because I think that answers the question of, you know, what, what's complementary and where are the gaps? And what yeah. CMAC has taught me is that design, brand, and uh, experience matter a lot, right? My natural reaction is like, let's just look at the numbers. Uh, none of the stuff, other stuff matters, right? And he has shown me over the years that those things do matter and do have a real value at the time of sale of a business or we're valuing a business, right? And uh, that's been very valuable for me. Um, so I think his strengths are definitely there. Right. Um, where, you know, I, I would tend to back burner that or, or not do it. Um, I, because I think you my, had a, you had an engineering background as well. And the, yeah. so I guess, was he more like the business type of uh, approach and you were at the beginning more like the engineering approach or, or how did you guys balance that? I think we balanced the business stuff pretty evenly because we both went to Babson. Um, I, I definitely built the original software uh, and, and he did the original uh, design and marketing. Over the years, that shifted a little bit because more of the marketing actually became metrics-driven than than not. But the piece that got pulled in there was at least 10% of spend was always spent on brand and experiments, right? So that that to me was very valuable. Like I would not have probably done that on my own, but today I see the value of that and I would never do it without that. So as you're thinking about metrics and and being able to value or to measure the health and the success of the of the business, how were you thinking about KPIs then, and and perhaps uh, what made you like think the way you think about KPIs today? Yeah, so we we were a very metrics driven organization, um, highly reliant on A/B testing and really looking at real data to make decisions, even on the marketing side. Uh, but one of the biggest learnings I found from a, a metrics perspective was understanding the difference between le leading indicators and lagging indicators, right? So a lagging indicator is something like revenue, while while important, right, and something to pay attention to you can't really take action on it, right? Like it is a result that happens because of a set of things, right? So, you know, okay, this month was a million dollars of revenue. Okay, like that's great. What, what could I have done differently? It doesn't answer that question where maybe number of new customers in, in a 15-day window, that's a much more leading indicator, right? Like why do I not have enough here? And that leads to the revenue, right? So I think yeah. that shift was very important. So we moved all of our metrics to things like that. And then on a longer term perspective, looked at like revenue uh, and typical metrics on a yearly basis compared with what are the actionable metrics we work on today. And then one of the things that, that comes to mind is you guys actually build this over the course of 12 years. So I always say to founders that you need to build things like starting from the store and then eventually that grows into really becoming the mall, but not the other way around because then you don't have like <laughs> the, the, the building blocks of the structure, right? So I guess for you guys, like when you're thinking from like the business model perspective, 
What was that business model in 2003 versus, let's say, 2015? The business model was exactly the same. It, it was charge people a monthly fee for the set of features they need, have some add-on features. The add-on features themselves changed over time, and then charge people for the minutes used just like a cell phone, right? So the business model stayed the t same, and I think the power of that was that from day one, we made sure those metrics were profitable. So we never expected to sell the business. However, the funny thing is, building a highly profitable, scalable business that can support itself with a management team and full staff is a highly attractive acquisition target, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's like weird these days when people are like, that's not the way we think, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Like we're, in essence, we're saying, a well-run business is something that people want to buy. Like, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you know, people get like really lost now with raising money. And, and look, raising money is a is a stepping stone. It's not a milestone. I think that the milestone needs to be like, hey, how, are, are you profitable? Are you making money? Is this a business that makes sense? I think that people are really getting lost nowadays with with all this raising money thing. I think it's hard, right? Because like we see these companies going public that are losing a billion dollars a year or more, right? Um, and and it's it is hard to understand that those are the 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 true exception to the rule, right? Uh, so people strive towards that, and it, and it's not a good thing to strive towards. There are very few, if any, companies that that makes sense for. And I think in the long run, if we look back over history very few of those companies continue to exist, right? I think Facebook is one of the ones that was a little bit different, right? Like they they were starting to make money, but it, they also had a clear path. I, I, I kind of compare that to Uber where there is not a clear path like, oh, right now we're giving all rides away for free, so we're going to start charging for rides. No, right now they're subsidizing rides to get people to use the platform And I would quite easily say if they stop subsidizing rides, people don't use the platform, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, it, it's not the, exactly the same. And I think it's just the wrong thing to be looking at. And it, that's what gets celebrated, right? Billion dollars this on the stock market. A hundred percent. So I guess the, um, the question here is saying is how, how did you guys capitalize the business then? So we were 100% bootstrapped from day one until we sold. So we capitalized the business internally based on cash flows, credit cards, American Express gave us a lot of very attractive terms over the years, probably when they shouldn't have, <laughs> right? But I mean, that right. it's all personally guaranteed, but still, like, they extended quite a lot of credit, right? Um, and uh, towards the later years, we did utilize uh, some debt financing mechanisms that, that yeah. were uh, well modeled out. And, and the key to me there was we only looked at debt for pure marketing growth channels, meaning like in the last year before we sold, we had to put $12 million into radio advertising, right? I knew what the returns were. I knew what the metrics were, but I wasn't using debt financing to hire staff on some bet on a new thing that people might pay for, right? Like I was using debt in the later years for put a dollar into the machine and get $2 out on the other end, which is a very safe bet, right? So, so then let's talk about the... Um the credit card, right? Because you were talking about American Express and the attractive terms. So it's actually quite scary because once you pop, you can't stop with a credit card. So so how was that experience for you guys? 
Yeah. So it, it gave us a few advantages. One was just time. So if if a vendor billed us and gave us net 30 terms and then we negotiated with them to then pay on a credit card, we were in, in essence getting net 60 to net 90, depending on the timing of the, the credit card bills, which meant at that point we, we had a positive cash, cash cycle because we were collecting money from our customers at a much faster rate than that. Right. So that allowed us to extend our runway. Now, it's quite scary when there's credit card bills that are million dollars, right, that are personally guaranteed and you don't have enough cash to to meet payroll or something else is happening internally. Uh, So it's hard to manage sometimes. But I think the advantages are are there. Um, And then obviously the extra bonus with American Express and a lot of cards now are are the points, right? So that allowed us to use that for travel and other things that we might've paid for. So we use the points as kind of intelligently as we could. So bootstrapping is uh, without a doubt, a little bit um, scary, right? Because, um, because there is many, you can't go as fast. And then also there's like, you gotta be very careful with how you're managing cash flow and, and, and things like that. So, so I guess, one of the things that comes to mind now is uh, you and I, David, know that that basically the the journey of being a founder and, and building a business from the ground up is a, is a tough journey. And uh, you have really highs and you have really lows. So when we're thinking about the lows, and especially with a bootstrapped um, uh, operation like this one, what was one dark moment that you remember where there was a really good breakthrough uh, coming out of it? Yeah, so I think there's probably two, but the, the biggest one um, that I'd say had the, the, the best long-term impact once we got over it was we, we were uh, in an executive planning meeting. We, we got a business coach. We decided that you know the company was at a big enough stage, $15 million, you know, 40 people or so. At that, and we didn't realize at the time, but that was too many people for what we actually needed. Uh, we had no core values that had been written down and spoken, no core purpose. We developed those and quickly realized that like half the staff did not meet our core values, right? So that's a tremendously scary moment. We're like, oh crap, like we've hired the wrong people. And that's why we have that feeling when we walk into the office, like, oh, that person just doesn't fit. Like, I don't like being around them. Like those kind of quote unquote feelings that we get. And it was this crystallization moment when we could see what that meant when we had these values up and like, oh my God, this person does not meet this, 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 and this. And those are our values. And we talked about it that evening. And the next day we fired 15 people. Um, Now it was probably uh, both the worst and the best decision. So the worst decision doing all 15 people in one day, (laughs) right after this planning meeting created this culture of like, oh my God, they're going into a planning meeting. The whole staff's going to get fired tomorrow, right? So there there were some clear negatives from our implementation of this, but it was the right thing for the business. It transformed our culture. It took us from being highly unproductive to highly productive, the right people in the right seats for the right reasons. Um, And that took about a 12-month period. But ultimately, what we gained from it, obviously, having the core values and core purpose clearly defined and integrated into everything we do from hiring to firing to rewards and recognition, both public and private, uh, a very productive organization that was doing $500,000 revenue per employee when the metric of kind of good SaaS businesses was like one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000, right? So then what were some of those values, David? 
Yeah, so the values at Grasshopper were, um, they spelled out Gary, go above and beyond, always entrepreneurial, radically passionate, and your team. Each of those values had a small sentence underneath it that kind of gave a little bit deeper explanation. And then most importantly, there were stories surrounding all of those values. So we created a culture and a kind of a lore of stories within the within the company. Uh, and so someone could say, you know, I caught David going above and beyond when he picked up the call at three in the morning and spent three hours on the phone with a customer, you know, when it wasn't even our fault, like those types of stories. Right. Um, and, and then we also defined our core purpose of empowering entrepreneurs to succeed, which was the why of why are we here every day? Why do we, why do we do this? Like, yes, it's great to make money and yes, it's interesting to build a business, but like, why are we serving these customers? So we identified with entrepreneurs and, you know, making it very clear what we were doing, which was giving them the tools to, to, to be successful. I, I love that. I mean, I think it's all about the why. And I find that many founders, unfortunately, they get lost with the how. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, trouble, you know, can, can come, you know, to light. So, so one thing that, that happened definitely is um, at one point uh, uh, Citrix, you know, knocked on your door and, you know, you, you guys ended up doing a, an acquisition there. But, but. Tell us about that process. How did it happen? Yeah, so it was a year, year and a half process. Um, it, it was a, quite an interesting one because, like I said, we we had no interest in selling at all. Like, we didn't even have a quote-unquote exit plan or exit strategy. Like, we just, we were just building a business that we loved being at and we loved the customers we worked with and doing something we thought, thought was valuable, right? Um, so Citrix came to us. They, you know, kind of, had asked, like, you know, tell us what you guys are doing. And, you know, maybe there's some cross-sell and upsell opportunities. Let's, let's talk about those. It quickly turned into, like, you know, could we have a conversation about, you know, acquisition? And our answer was just quite clearly no on a number of occasions throughout that process. And, you know, one of the answers was, like, look, like, we know very clearly what we're going to do over the next six months. And we've had, like, 15 or 20 quarters of, you know, hitting our hitting or beating our goals so we believe very firmly that over these next six months, this is what we're going to do. Uh, so there's not a lot of sense in having the conversation right now. And they said, okay. And they came back after that period and they said, how's that going? We said, look, you know, we've beat all the stuff we thought we were going to do. And they're like, wow, uh, we've done 50 acquisitions. Uh, we talked to a lot of companies and no one has ever actually met their goals. They told us they were going to do when we came back to them. And we're like, look, that's just the culture that we created. Um, from there, you know, talks kind of continued and it became very clear that it was a good fit. Uh, Citrix would keep the brand Grasshopper. Uh, they, they, we had a lot of conversations about how the team would be treated and, you know, what it would look like and how it would be run. Uh, and then obviously from a value standpoint as an entrepreneur, um, you know, I think they were paying a, a bo- above market premium for what they wanted which makes it something that an entrepreneur has to consider. Of course. And, and I guess when you were saying that the process was, um, you know, was, was a little bit longer, not like, um, not like a few months or so. So I guess when it started, was it like uh, because of um, partnership that you guys were developing or did they like reach out, cold email or on a phone to learn more about your business or how, how did it happen? 
Yeah, the original outreach came via a person I knew that um, his company had been acquired by Citrix, so he was helping them out in this process. So uh, it was someone I knew had, had re reached out and said, like, you should have a conversation with these folks at Citrix. So that, that was the initial contact. And then it just progressed over time. And then were you like uh, shifting from one department to maybe like Corp Dev or, or what, what happened there? Yeah, it was, it was Corp Dev the whole time. Got it. So then let's talk about the last day. So that day you are sitting down, you have the agreement right in front of you. You're ready to pull out <laughs> the pen and, and sign that. So what happened and what was going through your mind immediate, uh, most immediate, like before that actually happened? Yeah, this this is this was a, a difficult day, right? Um, and and difficult because it's tremendously emotional when you know your identity is tied up in being the grasshopper guy for 12 years, and like that, like that's how my family knows me, contacts, friends, like everyone, right? Um, and you know, we we didn't we were not staying around, so it was a very fast change. So on one hand, you know, like there's some like crazy logistical questions, like where do you deposit such money? Like, uh, like what, what do you do? Right. Like there's just some logistical stuff that happens. Right. Um, but the much more emotional part is like, Oh my God, like I'm no longer that person. Like, so I lost my identity overnight, which, which was a very challenging thing. Um, but luckily I had spoke to a number of people who had gone through similar transitions and they gave me a lot of advice, um, in, in kind of what to do and what to think about. And, you know, I'm so glad that you touched on this because in many instances, I look, I, I've been through it as well. You tend to identify yourself as the entrepreneur, as the company, and you think mm -hmm. that you are the company. So, yes. so in this case, like what process did you go through in order to be able to detach yourself and your identity from the company? I mean, the first logistical thing was like literally changing my email address and domain name on all my accounts. Like that was, that was like, took many days of effort. Um, but kind of pulling myself away from that and having to find what my identity would be, right? Uh, am I an investor? Am I an entrepreneur? Am I both? Um, asking those questions. And the piece of advice that I heard again and again from people was, first, don't rush into anything, right? So your natural reaction as an entrepreneur is to just go do another thing, right? If it's start another business, if it's buy something, whatever it is, don't do any of that. Just slow down, right? Even yeah. if it feels uncomfortable. Uh, and then two, start to really think about and test to find what is most impactful to you, right? Like everyone can talk about like what you quote unquote should do, but find what is like actually interesting and makes you happy, right? And in that process, I spent a year, year and a half testing out different things to see what it was I wanted to do. And what were the terms of the acquisition, David? The, the acquisition was uh, all, all up front, a small escrow over time, but me and my business partner left immediately. Uh, the executive team stayed and had uh, incentive to stay for two years uh, to run the business, uh, but very attractive terms that, that worked well for everyone. Got it. And I believe it was reported as $176 million, so not bad without uh, raising any money, David. Is there any... Anything that, that you were like hoping to buy one day that you finally were able to buy after the transaction? <laughs> I, I, I wish I had like a fun story like that. Um, right. I, I mean, to be quite honest, like both me and my business partner lived in nice houses that we liked. Like, you know, they weren't like cheap houses. They also weren't tremendously expensive houses. Um, yeah. So I live in the same type of a house I've ha I happen to have moved. Um, I own the same car since 2011. Um, I, I bought a new car for, for the family, but 
uh, I mean, other than that, like everything stayed roughly the same. Um, I, I, maybe I got to come up with a better. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> really cool. Really cool. So then let's talk about Chargeify. So Chargeify was the, um, the spinoff out of this. So, so tell us the story behind it. Yeah. So inside of Grasshopper, um, I, I, there were two challenges. One, uh, as two entrepreneurs over the years, we started to get bored and we're like, all right, let's start building new things. And, you know, what, what can we do? And then we started creating this kind of false story inside of Grasshopper. And it's a very natural one that happens, I think, in a lot of companies as they scale, every time you hit these kind of revenue plateaus, right? So at like $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, and then maybe 30, 40 before you get to that 50 mark, um, which is maybe we've saturated the market. Maybe we can't grow as fast as we were growing. Maybe you know, this is now a shrinking market, right? So every year we kind of told ourselves this story. So we became distracted and started building what we called Grasshopper Labs within Grasshopper. And then that was to build these other companies, right? And the idea was like, well, we're smart entrepreneurs, right? Like we've done one thing that's relatively successful. We can just repeat it which is just crazy, right? Like there's a lot that has to do with timing and team and all sorts of other factors. So A, it's not repeatable. Um, B, the, the things we were building were solving problems for our type of company, which meant high growth over $10 million. There are very few of those customers in the world. So we were very good at doing primary demand generation for very small customers, one to 10 employee customers, that there were hundreds of thousands of new ones a month, right? And then we shifted into this new market of like, again, solving our own problems, which is the right way to build something. But we had no idea how to market it. We didn't have the right sales teams. We didn't do anything right. However, Chargerify did come out of that. um, And I think it was successful because we had built our internal billing system three different times ourselves, so had learned a lot about what it means to build a flexible billing system for recurring payments with varying degrees of complexity and variables. Um, and we built that for other people, um, sold it as a software, as a service, uh, ad- the market identified with it, and the business has been pretty successful. So what ended up being the outcome of Chargeify? So Chargerify, we built as a 100% remote team, great team, did it over a number of years. Uh, about a year after Grasshopper was sold, we sold Chargerify in a separate transaction um, to ScaleWorks, a fund that, that, I, that I invested in who buys software as a service businesses like that. Uh, and they've done a great job of scaling it further from where we were and you know, putting in place the sales team that we weren't experts in doing and, and, and kind of the stuff like that. And now they, they've increased growth pretty substantially now. That's amazing. That's amazing. So now, Superfat, what's going on with Superfat? Yeah, so Superfat uh, is a, a new business I've gotten involved with. Uh, this is a, a consumer packaged good. It's an on-the-go, nut butter-based product, little kind of squeeze pack, uh, high-fat, low-carb, primarily macadamia nuts, one of the best profiles uh, uh, kind of fats for nuts. Um, and this really came out of, you know, I'd been eating this way for a long time and, you know, I just love these products, invested in a few of them. Uh, and you know, this team, I think is is a great team. So we, we got heavily involved and, um, now one of our, 
um, uh, previous employees at Grasshopper. Um, Mike is now running this business um, and, and is a co-founder. So it, it is it is quite exciting and uh, a totally new industry to, and something to learn. And you know what? One thing that I thought it was really cool, something that you have um, coming up is the um, is your book Unstoppable. And uh, I think that up until now, we've all been uh, as founders, like the, all about the ramen, you know, when you start and <laughs> doing weeks and weeks of, uh, I remember when, when I started the last company, I was not coming out of the house for like two weeks in a row. It was insane. I was not seeing the light of the day. So, so as founders at the beginning, we don't really take care of ourselves. And I know that this book is about hacking your health. So yeah. what are those uh, steps that, that you talk about, you know, in this book about transforming your life, which uh, the book is coming for the people that are listening it's coming out in September 2019. So tell us about this. Yeah, so Unstoppable is really the culmination of, um, one, taking the, a, a simple, continuous improvement framework, the same thing you would do in marketing testing. So identifying what the issues is, are, um, creating a hypothesis, testing it, measuring it, and then putting that back into the loop again and again. Um, but you know, most importantly, what, what happened was I was doing this in my business every day. Like I was optimizing everything for, for profit, for revenue, for customers, like optimizing everything, running all numbers, running it all by numbers and data and real tests, right? And then in my life and health, just ignoring it all, right? So finally making the mindset transition to say, what, I, what I'm doing in my business is tremendously valuable in my life, and I just have to start applying it. So one, it's a, a simple framework. Um, two, it's uh, setting that mindset and understanding that optimization in life, body, and mind is very is very positive, um, and can create great changes in your business as well. Uh, and then walking through some of the conventional wisdom myths that we've been told, like eat a low fat diet, like you know sugar is just a calorie, uh, counting calories into the calorie balance myth, um, red meat and cancer, like it's just kind of crazy stuff, uh, the myth about cholesterol, and setting the stage to say, maybe what we've been told as conventional health wisdom might be wrong. And, and this was really based in the fact that spending many years, 10 plus years being frustrated with the results of listening to conventional wisdom, I said, you know what? Maybe either conventional wisdom is wrong and we can, we can discuss the science behind it and whatever and have a, an argument about it. Um, so maybe it's wrong or more importantly, maybe it's wrong for me, right? So if I've been frustrated with my weight and my health for 10 or 15 years and I've extremely followed like to the absolute maximum extreme, like running a marathon and doing half Ironmans to burn more calories, right? And it's not working, then if I open my mind up and say, maybe something else works for me. So when you're thinking about a body and a mind that is uh, fully optimized, like, like you were talking about, was there like, um, I guess like during your journey as a founder, like looking back, there was, looking back, there was like a moment that was like the before, right? Like, let's just think about plastic plastic surgery. There's the before and the after. What was the before, <laughs> David, and the after, David, with a mind and a body that is fully optimized? Yeah. So one, I don't think we're ever fully optimized, but I think we we get to that kind of point where we're like, okay, m now it's all micro optimizations compared to big things. But I think the most notable is I lost 40 pounds. Um, so that's clearly a visible, noticeable difference. 
um, changed my sleep from going to bed quite late at night to now going to bed at 9.30 or so, um, waking up very early um, without an alarm clock. Uh, and you know, th those are like very noticeable changes that you see. Now, for me personally, the, the things that were like these magical moments almost was like not feeling hungry anymore, right? Like I spent my whole life feeling hungry and thinking about food and being told that we should snack all the time and creating this vicious cycle in my body and now not feeling hungry. That was like that change of a magical moment internally, um, or another one taking off my shirt in yoga. So I went from, you know, doing triathlons and marathons and being overweight while doing it, uh, even though burning a tremendous amount of calories to practicing yoga six days a week. Uh, but it took me a year to feel comfortable enough, even though I had lost all the weight, to take my shirt off in the class and practice without my shirt on, even though other people are doing that in the room. But it's it's quite a challenge after dealing with that frustration and shame over that period of time. I hear you. I hear you. And, you know, it's a, it's interesting, you know, like really being conscious about how you're taking care of, of yourself now. And, and, and unfortunately, many founders, they're just like with the with a thing that people are coining as the hustle porn, right? It's just uh, <laughs> thinking of, of more work, more work, more work, more work. And the problem is that if you don't really take a step back and take care of yourself, you're going you're gonna to get burned. And then it's going to be all for nothing. So it's a, we only have one body and we need to take care of it. Yeah, and I wish I listened to myself back then because I'm quite sure I would have been far more productive if I wasn't working 100-hour weeks and, and killing myself, staying up all night and, and doing those things. But it, it felt like, one, I had to, and I think that's a myth. That's not true. Um, and two, it felt like part of the culture. Like, if you weren't doing it, you weren't good enough. Where today, I think very differently about that, that I want to have the most productive hours during the day, during my workday. Right. And that might extend into the evening. However, I, if I have the most productive day uh, hours, I need less hours. Yeah, makes sense. So, so, David, let me ask you this, because you've been through the blog quite uh, quite a few times. So if I always ask this question to guests, if you had the opportunity to speak to your younger self and you were able to give yourself one piece of business advice, what would that be and why? Uh so if I was speaking to my younger self, um, outside of the health thing that I just kind of spoke about, like taking care of my own self rather than just prioritizing employee health, which I think is this interesting dichotomy where we know that healthy employees are more product productive employees taking care of myself, um, I'd say the one piece of advice and the one thing that has created the most success in my life is just charging people for the things I produce. Like it is the most simple, basic kind of core principle, but asking people to pay for something creates so many positive effects. It makes me care about it more. It makes them care about it more. It makes, it, it creates real feedback loops. It like everything that comes from it is, is what I believe makes a, a great business. Very interesting. And, and one thing that I want to ask you is what does um, an effective feedback loop look like? So I think an effective feedback loop is one that where the customer cares deeply about what you're doing and it clearly affects them or their business to fix a problem, you know, change something or whatever it is, right? Um, because the worst is the free customer who gives lots of feedback. I want this. It should do that. 
And because it's free, it has no effect on their business. They are not bought in into it at all. So it is the worst feedback to listen to um, compared to that paying customer. Like, I, I want to know the answer to the question, if I create this feature, will you pay me more or will you stay longer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Makes total sense. So, David, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, unstoppablebook.com. Uh, there's a sign up there for mailing list for early access to the book, some discounts and, uh, some exclusive content that's not available in the print version for September. Um, or davidhauser.com. I have a weekly email that goes out some quick bullet points about the things I'm thinking about reading or using. Um, you know, people always ask me like, what are the cool products? And, you know, I, I try to keep them relatively inexpensive. I I've tested all sorts of things, but like, you know, some of the most impactful things like the squatty potty in my bathroom is like 20 bucks, right? Um, so I try to share some of those things on a, on a weekly basis. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.